I'm Josh Lane and welcome to the On Leadership Podcast. This is a one-on-one interview podcast with leaders in the United States Coast Guard. We discuss their unique and diverse backgrounds and find out what experiences shape their personal philosophy and psychology and how that impacts their leadership style. Chief Merzlach is a Chief Petty Officer at the Incident Management Division at Sector San Francisco. He has many years of regulatory inspections experience on all different types of freight ships, including tank ships, container vessels, gas carriers, and so much more. In this episode, we discuss the fundamental habits and mindsets of being a good leader, like the importance of challenging yourself on a routine basis, the power of education and continuous learning. We talk about the importance of giving back to the junior people in your field, and so much more. I want to give a big thank you to Chief Merzlach before we get started. Uh, You may have guessed by his name that Chief Merzlach has Eastern European roots. Uh, He was born in Bosnia, which was then a part of Yugoslavia, and he shares his harrowing story of how he and his family got out of that country, literally as it was fracturing into numerous independent countries through a series of very violent and bloody wars. Those moments, they had checkpoints everywhere, and they were pulling people off buses, Um, so you had military personnel that went on they were looking they're like hey let me see a passport on a serbian side and um i remember my mom telling me uh make sure you know when they ask you where you're from say you're from uh from belgrade it's just an incredible personal story um you know becoming a refugee at such a formative age so again thank you to chief merzlach for sharing this and without any further delay i give you this conversation with chief zlatan merzlach Chief, thanks for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm super excited that we get to sit down and uh, and get to talk about your uh, leadership a little bit. But can you first explain just to like the general audience what it is that you do here, so that they have some sort of context? Uh, so I supervise the enlisted personnel mainly. Uh, also, um, kind of interact with the officer world, so I'm kind of the bridge between uh, the enlisted side and the officer side, and vice versa. So, and then. Um, it, any kind of support you guys need. Uh, I'm technically not the technical expert here. That's uh, what you guys are. So I just support the mission. Awesome. So yeah, so I'll just uh, point out too for context that uh, Chief Merzlach is is my direct supervisor. So there'll probably be a fair uh, amount of sucking up uh, during this podcast. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, I, but I really do uh, appreciate that. So we'll go ahead and get started. I mean, this this pod, the goal of this podcast is really to be sort of about like the psychology and philosophy of leadership. So we'll dive into your background uh, a little bit at first here to sort of see where those traits and those leadership qualities uh, come from, from your, your youth on to now and then we'll try to talk more about your actual leadership style so to start this off when and where were you born so i was born in um 1984 in a country that doesn't exist anymore yugoslavia um i was born in a province of uh, bosnia and herzegovina and uh when did you move to the united states so i moved to the united states when i was 14 years old that ends up being 1998 End of 98. So something uh, super important happened in the Balkan region in, be- in between those 14 years. And, a- and actually, I actually wrote down this quote just, just for this because uh, I-, I came across this just two days ago and I thought it was uh, timely for this interview. So Otto von Bismarck, the former chancellor of Germany in 1888, he said, uh, one day the great European war will come out of some damned foolish thing in the Balkans. He was kind of like the Mark Twain of Germany. But he said that in 1888, and he was right numerous times over. Can you give us like a, is there a two minute version of the 
Yugoslavian breakup? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Yugoslavia, I mean, uh, the Balkan region is uh, nicknamed the powder keg of Europe uh, often. So Yugoslavia actually is kind of a newer country. It started right after World War II. A guy named Tito uh, started it. They, they fought the Nazis. They were successful. Um, he ended up being the leader. Uh, Yugoslavia was created. And then uh, 1980s, mid-80s, he actually he passed away. Uh, it took about five, six years after that for uh, the disintegration of Yugoslavia to start. Uh, starting in 1991, you had the first province, which is Slovenia, that broke apart. It was like a two-week war. Um, the Serbs, which were primarily in the military in Yugoslavia back then, uh, didn't fight too much over that. Uh, and then you had uh, Croatia, 1991, a little bit later in that year, uh, also break apart. And they had a one-year pretty brutal war. Um, and then 1992, beginning of it, I think around May is when um, when uh, Bosnia started to, uh, they voted for independence and uh, started falling apart. Um, so I, I think you, the best way to kind of look at it is Slovenia, uh, Croatia, and Bosnia. Bosnia is actually the most mixed out of all uh, three, all three provinces. So the interest of the parties that did not want to depart, which is Serbs, um, was much greater in Bosnia and Croatia, which is why Slovenia is it's primarily just all Slovenians. Um, so that's why it was only a two-week skirmish. And then if you look at uh, Croatia, it's, it's about 60, 70% Croatians, Catholics, and then 30, 40% uh, Orthodox Serbs. So that's why the war was pretty brutal there. There was a interest there. And then Bosnia is split between um, Muslims, about 40%, 30% Croatians, Catholics, and then uh, 30% uh, Serbs. Yeah. And all three sides fought each other uh, during that civil war. But it, the funny part is, if you're in the northern part of Bosnia, you were allies with Croatia. If you're in the southern part, you were actually fighting the Croatians. Wow. And the Serbs fought all three. <laughs> so, Yeah, it, uh, like looking at the history of that region, there are people that consider themselves ethnically different from all the other regions. They're religiously different. They are politically different, right? Like Correct. there's eight to 10 different countries, depending on who you ask, right? I mean, like yeah. if you ask if Kosovo is a country, it really depends on who's talking, right? So Absolutely. Um, it's, it's just kind of mind blowing how, sm I mean, that region's not, it's smaller than Spain and there is just uh, all of these populations that are close together that are highly nationalist and then also just don't agree with the people that are on their borders. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's something that's uh, super interesting and it's been a, the source of a lot of pain, I guess, in that, in that region. It is. I, I think, uh, geographically they're in a really interesting place. Um, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a gateway to Europe. So, you know, any, any empire that wanted to go either, do the Crusades or go up to attack the rest of Western Europe had to go through the Balkans for the most part. So that area was always occupied, whether it was the Nazis, uh, it was the Ottomans, it was um, the Austria-Hungarian Empire. Right. So there's always somebody on top of the people that are actually born there. And that, I think that kind of brews a, um, a fighting spirit. That yeah. I'm not saying it's right what everybody did, but. Sure. So what's it like being a child growing up during wartime? Um, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of people, when I tell them that's my story, um, <clears throat> they're, you know, even my wife, they're like, oh, I know you're so lucky and all that, which I, I do consider myself very lucky, but 
I think my story is actually um, nothing compared to what uh, some of my relatives went through. Um, so in 1992, uh, my dad is actually a... Um, so my, my dad actually worked for the Yugoslavian military back then. Um, so in 1992, we decided, we knew that a war was already happening. Um, you could, you could, I lived in the tallest building in, uh, in, in this town, and um, you could see the fighting. You could see quite a few miles out. It was already happening. And what, what town was it? So the, the name of the town is kind of funny. Uh, it's named <laughs> Bihach. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's a north western part of bosnia okay. it's about 20 minutes from croatia so we could see you could see tracers um already happening so we it, it's when what's happening now in ukraine i could um i can kind of relate to it um to an extent where it, it was literally civilians we used to my dad used to have, have these watches at this building that we're at and he happened to have a gun, like service weapon that he was issued, but like everybody had to take turns and there was a desk at the bottom and then like you couldn't just enter if you were a nobody. And we slept in, um, slept in like full clothing in case the air sirens started coming in. And then you went to this like shelter that they've, you know, where the AC units were and you hung out there until it was over. How, um, how old are you? I was um, seven, eight you years have, old. You have any siblings that are with you? Sister. Okay. Yeah, she's five years older than I am. Um, so about we got lucky in regards to before the all the heavy fighting started in in Bosnia in, in the town, um, we managed to get out. Uh, we thought it was going to be a. Um, I remember waving to my cousin like, "Hey, we'll see you in a, we'll see you in a few weeks, a month." Ended up being thirty years. Where where did you go to immediately, and and do you remember like how that process worked? Like how did your yeah, we, how did your family get you? We had five bags with us. Um, we went onto this bus. It was like a refugee crisis. Everybody's just get on a bus, get out. Um, we went to a town called Banja Luka, which is on the Serbian side um, of um, in Bosnia. Uh, my dad is originally he was born in, in in Belgrade, which is he's Serbian. His dad was Bosnian, and his mom was Serbian. So he's like a mixture. And my mom was born in Bosnia, so. So that that kind of um, mixed marriage was very common. Oh, okay. Very, very common. And my dad was like, I'm not going to, even though I'm in the military, I'm not going to all of a sudden raise my arms against the people that are my family too. It doesn't make any sense. So anyway, we went to a town in Banja Luka. Um, we were there. I, I don't know who these people were, but we stayed at their place for a few days um, until there was this... If you understand anything about war, it's there's this chaos that happens uh, between, and there's a lot of movement. The military is moving, and then the civilian population is moving. Uh, everybody's trying to get out, um, and at that time, the war has already started, and um, you had bodies being delivered. So we took uh, a plane ride on one of those. It was just full of bodies of the war already happening. Um, my dad stayed behind, uh, and we flew from Banja Luka to uh, Belgrade. Your your sister and your mom and you. Yep. Okay. It was. Uh, I remember my mom just like crying. Um, it was these soldiers in there. Like that was. My dad had the hookup with him being in the military to get us out on a military airplane that was delivering soldiers and moving bodies back to. Um, wow. It's just like snuck you on that plane essentially. Yeah, he it, we weren't like snuck in, but like he he could get us in. Um, and then my dad stayed behind and he, he took, um, 
he showed up about a week later in Belgrade. Okay. Um, that's the capital of Serbia. Yeah. Capital of okay. Serbia. And that's where my dad's family is. So okay. we stayed there for about six months. Um, and he took the last plane out, out of Banja Luka. He um, says after that, everything was shut down. Uh, we stayed there for uh, six months. Um, <laughs> we started... Um, but at that time, actually, my, my grandpa died on the first day when a real fighting in, in Bihar started. Um, so my mom was like distraught. Her dad died. Uh, so um, and we started getting threats all of a sudden because people find out it's it's as big as all these towns are. They're kind of not really big. Um, they, they found out that we're from Bosnia and uh, my mom is kind of from the Muslim side. She's not a practicing Muslim or anything like that, but. Uh, she has that background, you know. Um, so, you know, this lady used to call us every day. Um, used to just threats. Like, we're going to kill you. We're going to chop your heads off. Be, because she's Bosnian or because yeah. she's Muslim or because she's Bos Bosnian? What is it called? Like Bosniak Muslim? Right? Yeah, Bosnian Muslim. Yeah, um, right, yeah. So, and so she's more upset the fact that my dad married a Bosnian. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And if. She just didn't like us. It, it, but she really wanted to get on my parents' skin because when I picked up the phone, she was really nice. And then as soon as, soon as she started talking to my parents, she's like, I'm going to kill you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so eventually, uh, my dad, we decided to have a plan to get out of Serbia. Um, so my dad <laughs> took leave um, and he went first to because it, to make it look like... Um, to make it look like uh, he was going on vacation. His family stayed behind, so him being in the military, they weren't worried. They're like, well, his family's in Serbia, so him going to leave is not a big deal. So yeah, he took a bus um, and went up to through Hungary, I think, uh, and then eventually ended up on a border in um, Austria. And um, he, he said I was the only one on that bus that didn't have a visa to go to Austria. And he said he had... 500 shillings, which what they used in Austria back then to give the border guard, like, hey, just let me in. Because he was afraid that they would turn the whole bus around and they're going to, like, like do something to him because the guy's like, well, if this guy can't go, nobody can turn the bus around. So he's he's going, though, to try to make connections to get you guys. Correct, because we okay. have family in Austria, too. Oh, okay. So to meet up with them. Okay. Um, and it was successful. The border guard, um, he looked at his passport and he's like... I don't need a 500 shillings. He just said, come on in. Wow. Uh, it let him in. And so and then like, I think it was a week. I don't know. I don't know how much afterwards we, we ended up going. Um, no visas, but, but they, you still no got visas, through. but I, I remember those moments. They had checkpoints everywhere and they were pulling people off buses. Um, so you had military personnel that went on. They were looking, they're like, Hey, let me see a passport on the Serbian side. And, um, and my, I remember my mom telling me, uh, make sure, you know, when they ask you where you're from, say you're from, uh, from Belgrade, you know? Uh, and, and because my last name is very generic, it doesn't really identify me, uh, where I'm from or my background. It's, it's like the general Slavic Smith. area. It's like a yeah, Smith. It's a, the Smith um, of the Slavic world. Is that? Correct. Okay. Uh, some, of my, some of my other, like my grandma's name is uh, Karabegovic. If a Serb heard that, he would know that person is from Bosnia. Oh. But when he hears my name, he doesn't really know. Okay. And so yeah. Can, either, can right. you feel like 
do you do you notice as a kid like the anxiety from your parents during this time? I mean, can you feel like how tense it is or I mean, just when you're a kid, you you don't really notice these types of things, but could you do you have any sense that you could tell back then? Yeah, definitely my mom. Um I could um you know, she cried a lot uh during the whole time. Um you know, my mom stresses no matter what anyway, but like throw in a war and it's like um to the times 10, right? So I, I could definitely feel that. I mean, when the, when the guy showed on bus, he specifically asked me, he's like, hey, where are you from? You know, I'm, I'm from Belgrade, sir. And, you know, he, then he took someone off the bus and, I, you know, you know how people have um, their first childhood memories. So those are the things I remember the most is, um, especially this individual, um, you, could, you could feel how afraid he was uh, when he's like asking the guy, hey, sir, do you mind if I take my bags? And the guy just straight up tells him, don't worry, you're not going to need them and tells the bus just go away. So I I know I don't know what happened to that individual, but I, mean, I can make assumptions. Here. Right, right, so, right. Yeah. Yep. And then we made it to Austria uh, and we had family there. We stayed in a small apartment with that part of the family. It was my mom's side. And then um, we ended up living with a Catholic priest wow. for three years. They took us in. It was like um, they had a refugee program okay. for people from Yugoslavia. And did your it, did your parents do work in Austria? Yeah, my dad um, ended up doing some uh, construction work over there. Ended up um, we're the only refugees in this little village in Austria. It was like picturesque if you think of Alps. It's beautiful. Uh, Sound of music. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's amazing. So. Um, and they were they were super helpful in regards to you know teaching me German. Um, I ended up being fluent at it. But went to school there. Yep, went to school there. Uh, we stayed there for six years. Uh, we moved a little bit in in Austria. Um, we kind of kept our you know the war was raging for four years in Bosnia. Kept our family afloat as much as we could, like financially. If there's, I was very lucky in regards to nobody from my family died uh, because of the war. Um, and I think that to this day, they're very thankful because, you know, coffee ended up being like a hundred dollars. Um, it's just a black market. So we, we kept them, um, financially afloat to survive there. So, so when do you, when do you make it to the U S from, is it from Austria? Yep. So from Austria after the war, um, there was a, you know, people started getting sent back to Yugoslavia um, but the country was totally destroyed um, Pe- people like um, were getting deported from Austria or yeah there was a there was a push okay. to kind of like okay your refugee visas have now expired ah, okay. um, you have to kind of make your way back um, and I just we were so used to now living in Austria that uh, we were going to school there um, and we we've we've gone to visit back but you, you know they were still dealing blackouts uh, every like twice a day, so it was like the life over there was not uh, not something my parents wanted to continue. So we applied to several countries. Um, you know, I remember them saying like they would apply to Australia, Canada, and for some reason they did not apply initially to um, the U.S. They thought it was like the hardest one to get in, so like it's not even bother. And uh, Australia and Canada refused, and uh, we ended up hearing of a, um, a U.S. 
project to bring refugees from Yugoslavia to the U.S. So we applied for that, got it right away. And really? Then, yep. What, then, so what year is this, do you know? Uh, 1998. Okay. So beginning, uh, probably 1997 because the process, I remember going to Vienna to the U.S. Embassy, doing interviews and ask, ask silly questions if you're a communist. Right, like, yeah. <laughs> no, no terrorists. Nope. <laughs> uh, and then 1998, they offered, hey, where do you want to go in the U.S.? And we're like, uh, I don't know, wherever. It's just wherever you want. Did they give they you get, options or are they just wherever you want Eventually they're like, where do you want to go? We're like, we don't know, like any city. And um, they're like, do you want to go to Arizona? Or do you want to go to DC? We're like, all right, let's go to DC. It's the capital. It must be the best place <laughs> on the planet. We show up there, five bags. Um, and we get put in this like apartment somebody broke into. Oh no. Um, it was just like a culture shock for us yeah. and uh, it wasn't like the best living conditions either. And we ended up being there for a few months and then my dad, um, this was, this was like an apartment that the, the U S government yeah. has. Okay. Uh, somebody stole the chairs, uh, broke into, took them. So my parent, you know, my parents were like, Oh man, did we make the wrong decision? Um, within a few uh, weeks, months, we managed to get out of that. Uh, my dad got a job and then uh, we moved to Northern Virginia and, that's kind of where I consider my, that's my U.S. home. I went to high school there. You grew up College there. and all that. Okay. Yep. And what did your, what would your dad do in Northern Virginia? So he started off washing cars and uh, ended up being uh, like the mechanic supervisor in, um, in Volkswagen. So. Nice. What was it like? You're now, you said you were 14 when you moved. Is that, is that how Yes, that's okay. correct. So what's it like now being, you know, a teenager refugee what's that did your parents try to preserve the culture or was it something like we're going to try to be as american as possible is it something like in between was it even did it even come up if i had to it, it didn't really my parents are are not um they, they they were not trying to preserve like you need to be bosnian like that's that's very important my parents were focusing very practical uh on education and just having a good life, right? Um, so, uh, if anything, my parents were mostly focused, uh, like kind of pushing more towards the U.S. Um, this is like a, a place of opportunity, a place where you can have, you can be uh, anybody we want to be, um, and they they really kind of pushed that, especially education. They they thought that that is a way to um, keep yourself afloat, even in the U.S. It's important, so. So I, I, I wouldn't say that, that that's pretty common amongst uh, Bosnians is to kind of preserve that Bosnian thing. And, and me internally, I, I do I do try to preserve a lot of it. Um, but that was never pushed by my parents. Okay. At all. Um, and the education thing. So they, they definitely pushed hard for good Correct. grades, all that, all throughout your, yep. your life. Uh, they did. I mean, it was when we were got to dc it was like i've never seen for example someone that's uh, it's, it's black um so it was like a culture shock for me right so we i went to abraham lincoln junior high um the first school and that was like one of four or five white kids that went to that school uh and my impression of the u.s was movies right it's i grew up on u.s movies and so what i saw you know movies tend to portray some of the worst about the u.s things sure. about the u.s yeah. And, you know, I show up and there's like metal detectors to go into the school. I'm like, oh, man, this is, uh, is this really like it is um, in the U.S.? But, you know, you spend a week or two there you, as a kid. You 
um, you kind of realize things so different, right? Um, so it ended up being, actually being a pretty good experience. Your high school experience was? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I started off my high school um, you know, in Northern Virginia. I went to uh, Stonebridge, uh, Stonebridge High School in Loudoun County. And um, it, it was good. You know, I, you start off as, a, as a, someone that is not fluent in English and just a foreigner. You start off with other foreign students, right? So that those are your best friends. Um, and to this day, I'm still really, really good friends with uh, some of them. So, uh, but it, it was, it was a good, good experience. Okay. Yeah. So eventually you go to, did you go to college anywhere? Yeah. I went to university of Maryland, university of Maryland. Yeah. And what'd you study there? Political science. Okay. Yeah. What eventually brings you into the coast guard? So I, what brought me to the coast guard is, uh, I, I just, part of it, probably my dad being in the military, he used to, um, th that's kind of what I envisioned a job. Um, he didn't have a desk job. Um, he was always deployed here and there. Uh, so initially I was like, let um, me join the army, U S army. Um, and, and my mom kind of convinced me, um, he's like, don't do the army. And just, and, and so I, I've even, I even went to a recruiter and talked to him and then, you know, talked to my parents about it and, um, and like I said, my mom was against it. And so I did her a solid favor. <laughs> I was like, okay, mom, I'm not doing that, but I'm, I'm going to join something that does not, um, it has somewhat of a, a cause. Um, it's kind of a little bit adventurous. Um, it's, it's, it's not a desk job cause I just did not see any appeal in sitting and just not just doing work and on computer nonstop. Yeah. Nothing Which like, is, nothing like you would do today. So, um, I ended up just, Hey, what about the coast guard? And, uh, we saw a recruiting office in Alexandria, Virginia. And, um, had you had any experience? Like, did zero. you see any, any coast guard? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to recollect if I don't think that YouTube back then, maybe they did. I don't know. Um, 2005, that's when YouTube may, might've started, but I remember looking up pictures, you know, and what you see is obviously the guy jumping out of a helicopter and I'm like, Oh, that's cool. Let me join that. <laughs> Uh, and then I found like out, 12 of those guys. <laughs> yes. Uh, ended up finding out I'm colorblind and that's how I became a marine science. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, so for the uh, people listening, colorblindness will limit your options of what you can do within the coast guard. And I assume that just implies in, in general to military jobs or, or any other jobs that, for that matter. But so, so part of you choosing to become a marine science technician was just a limitation of choices or were you interested in it before you, uh, got in? Um, I, I was actually more interested in the Intel world. Um, so I, I didn't have an Intel specialist back then, I think, but it was like OS or something like command, which if you think about it now that I know that's all they do is they sit on a desk. <laughs> so, but you, did, you don't know, that's not the pictures they portray, right? The choices I was given is very obvious desk job, such as a yeoman. Um, and then, you know, I, I didn't want to be a cook. Um, uh, and I definitely didn't want to be a DC, which is damage controlman. And, you know, finding out that deal with sewage and stuff like that, I was like, you know, what, I don't want to do that. Marine science technician sounds the most appealing. So, um, so marine science technician is, I mean, I think it's uh, the best job in the Coast Guard. I'm a little bit biased, but uh, but can you just uh, for the audience listening, can you s give an example of generally, you know, what what a marine science technician does? 
So uh, marine science technicians are uh, either put in a response world or the prevention world. Um, they are the, they end up being the technical expert. They inspect vessels for environmental safety and security reasons. And on a response side, they end up uh, responding to environmental incidents, uh, managing them, and eventually ensuring that proper action is taken to clean it up. Yeah, and so uh, so you have uh, a ton of experience in the prevention side, um, which is uh, mostly inspections. You have some uh, unique qualifications for this area. So can you give a, a, a brief rundown, I guess, on uh, some of those qualifications that you have? Yeah, so uh, I've I started with Port State Control, which is like the international regime that the U.S. has to uh, inspect vessels. So Port State Control—that's what it's called—and uh, then you start up branching off into other um, variants of that inspection world. Uh, you have foreign freight, which is inspects the. Uh, the vessels that carry the the, the steel, the the bulk uh, cargo, and then after that, you're dealing with tankers, and that's split between uh, three tank versions: gas, uh, chemical, and oil. So I have quals in that. So essentially, the Port State Control program uh, in San Francisco, where we are, um, it manages a, a whole host of different types of ships, probably the biggest ones being containers, right? Containers and then bulk um, steel scrap, those types Correct. of those types of things. But, you know, all of these ships have, um, you know, they come from all over the world. They have uh, all different types of people on board. You know, we'll, we'll see uh, crews from China. Uh, R- Russia, not so much right, anymore, <laughs> but uh, but from all over the world. And so um, a large chunk of the Port State Control Program and a large uh, chunk of what marine science technicians do, MSTs, is we ensure the safety of, of that program, ensure that, you know, everything coming into the U.S. is is done properly and, and safely. And um, yeah, it's just, it's really interesting. It's not something that I would have ever thought about outside of the Coast Guard, like, that, but of course, like some, somebody has to make sure everything yeah. coming in is, is, uh, is okay. So, yeah. And then, uh, right now, uh, so right now you, you briefly mentioned, uh, the, the response side of the house. So, um, we do a lot of pollution response here in San Francisco. Um, and whenever I mention that to people that, yeah, we do, uh, mainly what my job is, is pollution response in San Francisco. They're, they're like, well, what, I mean, what does that mean? There's no pollution in San Francisco, yeah. right? Like the Bay, you know, it doesn't, it's not polluted, but can you give somebody an idea of, of what a, a standard week in our division looks like? Uh, yes, I think, uh, we are, uh, if not the busiest, one of the busiest, uh, IMD shops in the U S. Um, it's, uh, like Josh said, it, uh, pollution is, it's, it's not, it's kind of hard to explain, but um, pollution here is some of it's politically driven, some of it's um, uh, just a sheer amount of people that are here and do enjoy this beautiful water we have. Uh, stuff does happen. Uh, but I would say the, the crew that we have uh, responds to uh, on average a case a day uh, to deal with at a minimum. Um, and then you then you have every other week you have a, a bigger case that kind of consumes quite a few days uh, to resolve. And then uh, once in a blue moon, uh, not a, every six months you have even something bigger. And then, you know, with American Challenger, it's a case that's over a year now. So it is definitely, we're trying to manage a lot of cases 
at once with very limited people here. It is sort of surprising, um, I guess, for the the general public, especially in this you know in this area, to find out just how how busy we are. You know, considering that there are you know pollution and hazmat incidences happening all the time. The greater majority of of them being very minor, Correct. but um, of course, like they require a, a you know a good amount of follow up and follow through and making sure that all all of those things are taken care of. So, so it's a very interesting job. So we'll move in to what it's like now, you being a, a senior enlisted uh, member of the Coast Guard. So, you know, I had the uh, the fortune of knowing you as uh, MST1, Merzlach, yeah. a, a first class petty officer, and then got to see you make chief. And I'll just, I'll start, I'll start off by pointing something out that I think has been an incredible thing with your leadership. So... You know, knowing you as another first class, you know, we were the same uh, rank. We had a very friendly relationship, right? Obviously, like we, we were coworkers for a while. And then you became my boss, like, you know, the next day. And uh, that doesn't usually happen uh, in, in the Coast Guard very often for people uh, who aren't familiar. Usually when somebody makes senior enlisted or even on the officer side, when they start to become more senior officers, uh, they usually move them uh, to a different command. And that's because you have, you're familiar with that person. You are you know them as that uh, junior, more junior petty officer or you know them as like um, more of a friendly version and then they suddenly become your boss, right? They, and there could be conflicts there. And there was this really interesting thing. So it went to uh, your your frocking ceremony where, where you made chief. And then we had a meeting, if you remember, like the hour after you had uh, put on those anchors. And uh, I had got to the meeting early because you were still wrapping up some things with your ceremony. And then you show up and you walked in the room and everybody was like, oh, there's chief. And it, and it, it was an instantaneous switch over. I don't know how you do that, but it, it, it literally you just became Chief Merzlach. You, you went from Z, as we all as we all called you, to Chief Merzlach in, in a, an instant. And I've, I found that very impressive because I've, I've seen it where it does not work that way. And you just instantly carry yourself as a chief. You, you recognize the responsibility of a chief and you lean into it. Um, and I'll just give an example and then, and then I'll shut up and let you talk, let you talk. But, uh, you know, recently there was this like weird glitch in my pay and I had brought it up to you. Hey, like I just found this like weird thing with my pay and I think within 10 minutes you had already talked to whoever you didn't know who was going to, was going to have to fix it, but you walked over to the department, started ruffling feathers. And then within 10 minutes you came back and you were like, here, print this out, go talk to this person. If they don't have the answer, come back to me and we'll figure it out. And you've done that for much more trivial things than my pay. And I've seen you do it for, you know, every single person uh, that works under you. So where does that come from? Where, where does your, you know, you aggressively attack, uh, aggressively attack problems. What, where do you think that comes from in your, you know, in your leadership style? Um, I, I think, um, I, I initially, you know, just, I had a, I had a tough time, um, uh, when I, when I showed up in IMD, um, in regards to just kind of, uh, totally visualizing what my role is. Cause you know, there's no, you don't get a book telling you this is what your responsibilities. You know, everybody tells you kind of like what they what they are doing, but there's there's just no book, and you just kind of have to kind of figure it out. Um, I think very fast, I've I've kind of uh, learned how to uh, 
um, that I am I'm, I I had to remove myself from the technical expert one because I was not a technical expert in response anymore. Um, but I, I think part of me, I am I'm always I not looking at my desk. You wouldn't think I'm a perfectionist, but there, I, I do I because I'm it looks messy, but like in my mind, I'm I'm very focused on uh, specific um, things, and, and I want to be really good at them. Um, and, and I think as, you know, when I became a chief, I was like, you know what, I, I have to, you know, the key role is to take care of the enlisted side. How can I do that the best? Um, and, you know, using previous experiences, you learn from the worst, right? Um, in my opinion, um, where like you've had an issue that could have been resolved really fast and, uh, you know, someone that you relied on just didn't. Um, help you out with that. So, I, those are the key things in my head that have always um, kind of stick. Is like, hey, let me let me try to help this person um, and not drag this on because I I, I, I know small trivial things um, if they're not taken care of in a in a timely manner or, or as they should be, uh, it, it just become a, a nuisance that really um, can have a huge effect on that individual and it just like infects everybody else. Um, you know, pay, when you mentioned pay to me, I'm like, if, if there's, that's like the basic thing we need, pay, food and stuff like that, right? Uh, if that does not work good, then our whole mission about this environmental stuff is, is just not gonna work well. You, you mentioned being motivated by all of the bad examples of, of leadership. You know, it's interesting. I ha I have been super fortunate in in my career to not have had um, those bad examples, or, or certainly not not a lot of them, right? Um, but it is interesting that when you are when you're faced with a decision, you don't know how you're going to do it. There are lots of people who will kick kick the can. They'll just kick it right down the road, and I'll, I'll get to that later, or I'll delegate that to somebody else who I shouldn't delegate it to, right? Yeah. But you get reminded, oh yeah, this has happened to me. You know, this has, this has happened to me a, a few times, and it wasn't pleasant. I, I think that that's that's a, a great example. If I if I can add to this, some yeah. people use bad examples, and they kind of um, they they become they stay bitter, and they're like, you know what, I'm gonna make I'm gonna continue this, and so they can feel what I felt back then. So I that's how I I use the total opposite on uh, on issues like that but um you know some of the best chief uh, maria reyes that uh, i've worked for is maybe why some people call me uh like i'm kind of laid back uh person um and she used that approach she she actually um gave the enlisted side their, their members the basic needs what they need and, and surprisingly it shouldn't be a surprise people uh, do flourish in that environment because um, I think in generally most people want to move up in their um, work environment and do just do better and do a good job no I don't think anybody just wants to do a horrible job yeah so. there, I mean there is um, there is still this belief of well this is the way it was when I was coming up right and you know, I went through it. So, so can you, or, or those types of things, or this is the way that it was dealt with when I, when I w was junior and they were my chief. So now I'm a chief and this is the way I'm going to deal with it. And I think that that is just, um, 
that's a confusion of tradition, right? Like yeah. we have a lot of traditions in, in, uh, in the military, you know, every branch of the military has their own traditions. And I think sometimes people confuse the good traditions with just the, that's the way it's always been done. And so I'm going to do it that way. Yep. Right. Even though there's something better. You mentioned your chief that you were inspired by. What were some of the things that, you know, stick in your head about I'm sorry. Can you say who? What was her name again? Maria Reyes. Maria Reyes. Chief, so Chief Reyes is she still in? No, no. She retired as a warrant. Okay. Um, a few years ago. Okay. So Miss Reyes, can yeah. you can you uh, give us a few examples of her leadership that inspired you? And and is there something that you try to to mimic or embody? You know yourself as a as a chief that she showed you. So you know she was you know definitely the chief of the shop. Um, but, uh, like I said, she was kind of on a laid back side. She, uh, she allowed her members to deal with, uh, challenging situations, um, where they, um, she allowed me to kind of lead quite a few operations, um, did not interfere, very minimal, uh, interference. And I, th I think, when you brought up that whole thing about a schedule change about like the FOCR, um, directly briefing to, um, the commanders and all that, uh, versus how it was here before. Um, you know, it's not a fixed hundred percent, but that, I think that's really important. That's what kind of stuck out uh, from her is, is the fact that she, she put us in uncomfortable situations. Uh, she didn't let us fall all the way down, but, um, eventually you feel like you've achieved something you feel victorious after you've done it right it wasn't like uh oh chief did that so it, if if you always get that feeling then you really um eventually you're like well i'm not really doing this like what what is my impact right on this mission so if i could just interrupt real quick because i because you mentioned something there that i don't think everybody's gonna fully understand so so you, you mentioned the FOSCR. So there, that's uh, an acronym for uh, Federal On-Scene Coordinators Representative. And uh, we don't have a half hour to dig into what, what all of that means. But essentially, <laughs> um, there is the captain is who is responsible for all uh, pollution responses in his area of responsibility. He designates that responsibility all the way down to through a qualification process to anybody as low as a E4 can get that qualification. Um, a, a third class petty officer and um, it, it you essentially act on behalf of the captain for all pollution responses um, so anything you know any oils or hazmat spilled in the bay you can obligate funds for you can hire contractors for um, I mean there is a million dollar checks being written by 19 year old <laughs> marine science technicians on behalf of the captain to, uh, uh, you know, remove a uh, pollution from the environment. This was a giant responsibility. Um, it's, it's something very strange about the coast guard and uh, in general is that we have those types of, uh, relationships and, and, uh, you know, really essentially opportunities for growth. So I just wanted to, to make that clear before we go on. Um, so I'm sorry. So go on. Was was there more things that uh, Miss Reyes had done? Um, I, I think what the fact that she uh, did allow me to um, be in charge of all this has helped me actually every every sector afterwards. Um, I've really kind of strived to get like some of the most challenging qualifications um, that are sometimes reserved for senior uh inspectors and all that but i i looked at that challenge as like well 
uh, other than rank, really, there is an, uh, not much different between me and this other person. So I don't know why I can't um, do that. So if there's an opportunity, I will uh, I will try to take that opportunity and um, try to do to be as as best at it as I can be. Um, I think I think that's something um, that's really important. It's it's definitely important in the Coast Guard, but I I think that that's a lesson for life. You know, if there is an opportunity. Um, and you're ready, then, you know, no matter what the history and the tradition is, right, you, you got all of these um, senior level inspector quals as a junior petty officer, right? I mean, um, that type of thing doesn't usually happen, but there's nothing that says you can't, right? Correct. Yeah, very correct. Yeah. So I th- I've just um, found that the Coast Guard will, will reward you for doing that for taking advantage of Hey, the, hey, there's nothing in policy that says I can't do this, so I'm going to do it. And the Coast Guard's usually pretty rewarding um, for that, and I think that that probably translates to a lot of areas in life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, it can backfire sometimes. As in, uh, when you're, I'm sure you've experienced that when you when you achieve some qualifications, nobody else has. Um, your personal um, side can take um, a little bit of a negative effect. Just you know, you're overworked a lot of times. Uh, but I, I consider myself like a, a workaholic, uh, so I enjoy it. My wife doesn't always she like she, she doesn't see the point in it, like why you always at work. But it, it's something that gives me um, great satisfaction. So, is is there anything that you do to try to um, have more balance within your your personal life? I mean, it's ob- it's it's obviously something that you've, you've thought about, right? If if you and your wife were talking about this, uh, absolutely. So, um, I you know weekends. Um, you know, my wife works from home, um, so I, I, I definitely sympathize with her frustration. Um, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I get to drive to work, um, but it, it, we try to stay as active as possible. Uh, we love going camping. It just gets you out of the environment. Um, it's just I think camping is very therapeutic yeah. to an extent, just nature itself. So we and she she loves it. So. So you guys both unplug completely Absolutely. from the job every, it's, every it's, time. It's, I think that's uh, very, very important to do that. Definitely. We're going to uh, move on to the, to the final segment here, but let me ask you one last question. When you think about your future in the Coast Guard role, you know, you're only going to move on to more leadership positions, right? You're, um, you're actually moving to be a, uh, MSSD, which is a, a warrant officer inspector, right? You're you're in the EMITP. There's a lot of acronyms in the military. Enlisted Marine Inspector Training Program. Correct. Right. So uh so you're already in that program or you're about to be in that program, which will is essentially a track to become a warrant officer, a a inspections officer. Um, and you might actually get that opportunity soon, sooner as well because you've, you've applied directly for that uh, program so um, to be continued. But when you think about, you know, what your future is going to be in the Coast Guard and there's going to be, you know, you're going to you're going to now be teaching junior officers, um, you know, possibly other petty officers about all of these qualifications that you have and, you know, making sure that they're responsible for the safety of our port you know, ports all, all across the U S what, what types of things are you still looking to achieve within your own leadership, um, your own personal philosophies, uh, when you look, you know, for the next five, 10 years of your career? Um, I, you know, I, I look back and there's been quite a few, uh, warrant officers that have, um, kind of inspired me, um, on a lot of the 
lot of the mission state they are involved in. So I, I, I hopefully I end up being um, somewhat of an inspiration for uh, some of the junior people, whether it's uh, enlisted or officers. Um, hopefully I can I can really guide them to be uh, proficient um, at at this inspection thing we're doing. Um, to be um, kind of my philosophy about inspections in general is. Um, you know, it's not all regulatory kind of my, my goal is to ensure that they actually understand what they're, uh, what they're doing. Right. Uh, a lot of people, um, just go off check marks and, but they don't really understand how the system works, how, uh, how everything interconnects and how you should, um, make judgment calls. So hopefully as a, as a, a warrant officer, I can influence that. Uh, where people are making decisions, um, fully understanding um, why they're making that decision, uh, which I, if the response world is kind of has taught me a lot of that stuff too. It, um, you know, you guys are a lot of times in a gray area of making a decision, and it's not always a, something I agree with or disagree with, but um, but that. I think in your in your world in the response side, it, it forces you to think about the whole uh, impact you're having, um, which some of it's political, um, which is not my favorite thing to do. Um, so hopefully that that's kind of my influence on um, on the junior side, and then obviously as as a as a warrant officer, I I hope I have some um, positive impact in the, in the command because I think as a warrant you. You become eventually someone that is um, directly influencing operations um, with decisions, right? Uh, and a lot of times it's decisions that are not then um, turned or construed in a way by someone higher um, anymore, right? Yeah. So you've, you've noticed that like on, on our side, we make a decision, it gets filtered eventually. Uh, something that sounded like, we made a decision on kind of comes out like that, but it's like totally different. Right, right, right. So as a warrant officer, hopefully I'll have that influence where it's positive yeah. and it's direct and good for the Coast Guard. To your first point about being able to influence those decision-making areas for, for people who are just learning those qualifications. I mean, that's something that we've talked about before that I, I find incredibly interesting about the inspections in general you know, we have literally stacks of books of regulations that we pretty much memorize, you know, right? Yeah. Like a, a, a good majority of them. And so when you're going on these ships and you're doing these inspections, you're really running through a list of regulations in your head. You're looking at a certain thing, you know, a piece of equipment, uh, you know, a piece of engineering, and you're looking at it. And all of these things usually are custom made right or there, there's not a lot of like repeated pieces of of machinery so you're looking at it you're running through your head what the regulation says and you're trying to piece together like does that meet the regulations right Correct. and you do this with hundreds of things on a ship you know in any day and despite there being every attempt by every major <laughs> regulatory agency there's still tons of these little cracks here and there where you're like, well, does that, is that exactly meeting the letter of that regulation or not? And it really is only through, 
interpretation by senior inspectors or you know much more experienced inspectors that you sort of learn why you would look at something you know a regulation one way versus another yeah so so you know inspections within the coast guard there is a ton of influence that comes from that that warrant officer core um you know that directs the sort of those gray areas um, that really do impact, you know, safety of the port, safety of, of life at sea. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting job and I, I some, something that you'll definitely be good at. So I hope you're looking forward to it. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, okay. So now we're going to move into the rapid fire section. Okay. I'm going to ask you a bunch of weird random, they're going to seem like weird random questions. They definitely are. And they don't have to be rapid answers. So, you know, you can decide to take your time with it or, or not. What does your morning ritual look like? When the time that you wake up to the time you get in your car to come to work, what does that look like? Um, get up, um, do brush my teeth. What time do you get up? Uh, I get up, my alarm starts at 5.30. I end up 6-ish, okay. 6.15. Okay. I, I do a lot of uh, snoozing, but um, but that's Monday through uh, Sunday. So I, I do weekends, I'm still early riser. So... Um, Get up. Uh, I don't usually eat breakfast. Ever? Uh, no, not ever. I, I did it with Mr. Hall for uh, some time. I think he needed some company. So I, but then it, it's just not my thing uh, to always eat breakfast. Just so. not hungry or? Just not hungry. Is this a, is this a, I'll a usually get hungry Bosnian on, thing that they don't it, eat? Breakfast is eaten uh, much later. Oh, uh, really? Like okay. nine, ten o'clock. They have a, their Dinner brunch. is eaten at six, seven, eight. Um, okay. So that's why it's not the healthiest thing to do. Okay. Um, so I usually avoid breakfast. I'm not a huge coffee drinker. Um, I do tea. Um, and what, what is that? You just not don't like the taste of coffee, or is it is this also something from your uh, Eastern European? Roots no, or? they drink a lot of coffee. It's okay. just, um, but they drink coffee differently over here. It's like a, a one gallon jug. Yeah, uh, it's over mostly there, water. It's like a small, yeah, yeah, over there it's a small little thing. It's a more of a social event. You sit down. You, okay. you you can't do that. You know, the U.S. is like a high pace fast moving country right 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 so um so it's just not my thing like i you know some people say chiefs should drink just black coffee and i think that's a bunch of bs yeah, uh, that I is don't. a stereotype for yeah. people out there that uh, pretty much chiefs are just 24 7 drinking coffee they don't drink water <laughs> yeah it's uh i don't if i do coffee they definitely cream and sugar in it uh 100 okay. what uh, type of tea any any particular? Uh, black tea okay black tea and then uh an afternoon i'll do like green tea or uh, Ashley bought some some peach, oh something. It's, it's just yeah, that's kind of my ritual in the morning. Okay, um, I do I walk my dog. So uh, if Ashley does it, that's a very pleasant surprise, <laughs> and I love it. What kind um, of dog do you? Have? A little terrier. Okay. Um, so yeah, I walk him, um, and then yeah, um, I'll hop in a car. I'll try to I listen to talk. Something talk, talk radio. Um, I, I don't listen to music uh, radio very much. Uh, so podcasts I, I, I like a lot. Um, and then if I do listen to music, I'll actually pick songs from my phone. Okay. What type uh, of music? Uh, yeah, uh, lately I've been a kick on some Bosnian music, uh, but, um, it, it ranges. It really is. It I mean, is it like Bosnian rock music or Bosnian rock music? Okay. Yeah. 
it, um, does it is it have a distinctive sound other than being other than the language or is it you really couldn't tell without you know if it was sung in english um uh, some of the bands have definitely major influence from the us on like just straight up guitar uh drums and all that um, but then they you know as they evolve <laughs> they they incorporate some traditional instruments uh, and they, they sound good but what is uh, a traditional bosnian instrument uh, well, you have uh, like violin, uh, accordion. Okay. Accordion oh. is like a <laughs> huge, yeah, huge accordion the, rock music. Yeah, it can, uh, it, you know, if it, it can sound actually very, very, um, very, very nice. Yeah, don't don't think of polka. I'm just thinking of Weird Al right now. No. But <laughs> what's Weird Al? Weird Al, he's that like a comedian musician, and okay. but he plays accordion in a lot yeah. of songs. Yeah, accordion, and, and some of it has. I don't know if it's because I'm from there. It has this. Um, I don't know if the right term is nostalgia. It's like. I just reminiscent of like yeah Bosnia it for sure has that feeling okay. to it. So what what type of podcast if you listen to podcasts? Uh, listen to some kind of news podcasts. Um, I'll do maybe sometimes a, a science podcast, but mostly news. I, I consider myself like a news junkie. I can oh really? I I don't read books a lot, but I I, I can read articles for hours. Okay, I'm just like I like reading through them. Any favorite publications? For a uh, news, yeah. so I, I'm, I'm going. I, you know, I go through Washington Post uh, to get some like in-depth articles, and then I kind of stroll between BBC, um, CNN, and Fox News, and yeah, stuff like just that. Just a little bit of every, yeah, every perspective. Just, I I love uh, just getting all these perspectives. You know, even with this uh, ridiculous war going on in Ukraine, I'll, I'll go in our, the Russian side just to see what kind of propaganda <laughs> they're right. they're pushing forward. Okay, so uh, other than you know, the Coast Guard, this job, what is something you are super passionate about? Like, what would you do if you weren't in the Coast Guard? Um, I, I, I want after the Coast Guard. I mean, that's, I always wanted to open up a bed and breakfast. Uh, Ashley's really? against it. Yeah. She's like, she's went to culinary school for a while. And then uh, she's like, you're out of your mind. Uh, you can't, you know, this, it's going to take up so much time of our us oh, to yeah. do that, but I, w- I would love to have my own kind of little business. Um, but what's attractive about a bed and breakfast? Like, what's I think it's it's nice to meet people all over the world. I, I would directly focus on hopefully if you open a bed and breakfast, it's a, it's a, it's at a beautiful place, right? Um, and you always have the company of others uh, for a short time. I you know I consider myself introvert, and I I'm, I'm I'm a bad friend in regards to communication, uh, but I'm very loyal. Um, it's just my communication uh, isn't always the best. And I think a bed and breakfast is the best. Like, hey, it's been two, three days. You know? Yeah, you guys <laughs> nice go. meeting you. Nice <laughs> knowing everything about you and goodbye. It's it's the perfect duration of a relationship for an introvert. Yes, yeah. yes. I, at Chiefs Academy, I was the most introverted yeah. in the whole thing. So, uh, Always been introverted? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, never. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I kind of I love playing by myself, like yeah. all the toys and all that. So yeah, I was a super extroverted kid, and I don't. Some switch happened, and I am. I mean, getting to do socialization after hours requires a pretty big, uh, yeah. <laughs> pretty big motivation for me. Yeah. Um. So where you you were talking about opening a bed of breakfast after the Coast Guard? Is that where you see yourself? post-retirement i mean or, or something else like that um in, in my dreams yes but i think um 
sometimes I don't know. We're not gonna we're not planning to have kids, so I actually consider that a possibility. But I, I think probably, um, if I'm realistic for myself, I'll get a job that's related to inspections afterwards. I do want to. I don't want to do thirty years in a Coast Guard. I just want to do something else. Yeah, don't want to hold a duty phone for another no. another decade. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah. If you could go back, uh, how how old are you now, Chief? 37. 37. If you could go back and tell your 19-year-old self anything, what would you tell yourself? Ooh. I, I wish my, my high school years, uh, senior year, I took kind of, um, I was a little bit reckless in regards to like grades towards the end. Um, and that, that kind of set me back on... Um, you know, I wanted to be an officer in a Coast Guard and all that, which, you know, I think about it, I'm colorblind. I wasn't going to be one anyway, but I, I do wish I wish I had a college experience uh, as in like going to college and uh, just having that experience. But it just didn't work out. Uh, ended up going to college, most of it online and then like after hours. So it's, it's different. But like, I, I think that that's one of the things um, that I can think of right now last question three people any time doesn't matter dead or alive that you would want to have dinner with and why okay um all right um i i would i would love to have <laughs> dinner with uh um the guy named gabriel princip the guy that <laughs> shot uh just to kind of find the, the I, w I would like to have dinner to find out what he would he make the same decision if he knew what the consequence was so, of his and him starting World War One. Yeah, so he was Bosnian. Yes, Gab Gabriello Princip, right? Yep. Yeah, and he shot Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Correct, kicking off the the cascade of events that started World War One. Yeah, and you and you would ask him what 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 the, the number one question is would he do the same thing if he knew what the outcome was of um yeah. world war one leading to world war two wow the cold war and i feel like his you know i think they call it a shot to ring around the world yeah um was such a um important event that his one shot had like i think most impact and a lot of other assassinations did not have that impact yeah yeah. Um, so yeah, any the, other assassination, yeah. I think it's probably fair to say. Um, some other people that I would like to have. Um, my grandpa. I I have some really good memories with him, but like, um, he he died when he was sixty. So, um, hmm. I would. Um, I I think he would give me a better explanation. Uh, my family history that um, my parents. History in the U.S. is kind of looked at differently versus uh, in Bosnia. Um, you know, everybody can trace something. Maybe it's easier to do it in the U.S. for some pop from some of the population, but in Bosnia, it just like it stops uh, pretty much after my grandma's grandma, and then you really can't trace anything back. Um, it's just everybody has gone through there and pillaged right. and done their <laughs> thing, and it just you just lose those connections, right? Um, so I, I, I would think maybe he would have more insight. Okay. Um, and then a third person, I don't know. I, I don't know why, but like for some reason when U S presidents, I would Bill Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, of all the presidents. Of all the presidents. Wow. Bill Clinton, I would like to uh, sit down. I think he actually had some influence in, uh, um, in, in the Bosnian War. Well, we, uh, yeah, of course. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So, um, where my grandma loved Bill Clinton for some reason. Really? Yeah. When she, <laughs> she came to visit the U.S., she took this like picture in, in D.C. and it's like this poster board building that she had it at home. <laughs> like, he was quite a charming guy. You know, played the saxophone, wore cool shades. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, a president. So, for some reason, would want to talk to him. Yeah, um, that's super interesting. I, I don't know why, to be honest. <laughs> Well, Chief, this has been uh, super fun, interesting. I've known you for a few years now, and uh, I, f I feel like this has been <laughs> the, the most now that I've ever, you know, really? we've had, yeah, in conversation. Uh, it, it was honestly, like, super fascinating, very cool. Thank you very much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Chief Merzlach, and thanks to Quantum Jazz for the music in this episode. If you'd like to read the show notes, they can be found at joshlane.substack.com. If you'd like to drop me a line, I'm at Josh Lane on Twitter or joshlane2 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.